has talent Whoa! that can't Fantastic. be contained. What is going on? We weren't expecting that. America's Got Talent. All new tonight, 8, 7 central on City TV or stream anytime. This badge signifies a promise. A promise to deliver the best or nothing. At Mercedes-Benz Richmond, it's about more than just selling vehicles. It's about building long-term relationships with customers and taking care of all of their vehicle needs. From their qualified technicians to their financing experts, you'll receive unmatched service at Mercedes-Benz Richmond. For details, visit Mercedes-Benz Richmond in the Richmond Auto Mall. Delari. CISL Vancouver is Sportsnet 650. The official home of the Canucks. Listen live online at sportsnet650.ca or download the podcast and don't miss a minute. Tampa Bay responds in Game 3 of the Stanley Cup Final. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks and your home of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Drantz here with you. Drancer, of course, also covers the team at the Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. Drancer, we've got a series again. We have a series. It's not 3 nothing. They're not dead men walking. We're back. We're back up. Let's can, go. Can I suggest to you that we always had a series? <laughs> yeah, but are, if they lost last night, it would have been over. If they if it, really, I mean, probably, but not. I mean, it's still Tampa Bay's still in a hole. They've still got some work. Oh to yeah, do. they could definitely transfer some pressure over to the the Colorado Avalanche with a win tomorrow. But I mean, this is the Lightning. If you'd left the Lightning for dead, you you haven't watched the Lightning, and we've all watched the Lightning. We're all hockey fans. We've all seen this team scrape, have some close scrapes. Just this last two rounds, like two of the last three rounds, they've been in big holes. They were in a bigger hole in the conference final. Down 2 nothing, and then down 2 nothing in the game. I mean, you count the lightning out at your own risk. And look, Colorado, I didn't think they played that badly, to be totally honest with you. That felt to me like the goalie win. You know, like you knew mm. that you oh. knew that Tampa was going to get a goalie win, and that to me is what that game felt like. So, first of all, I'll just say in terms of uh, having a series again, part of me now always thinks about this just in, like, content terms. And the great thing about that win last night is we get to at least through the end of the week with games to talk about now. So, that's huge for me personally as a radio Uh, broadcaster. I think think we're going to be talking about it in the next week. I'm thrilled with that one. I don't I don't agree. I don't think this is going to be the goalie win. Vasilevsky was excellent, and obviously Kemper was pulled. I thought he was on one. Vasilevsky was fantastic. If you look at a lot of the shot attempt metrics and the scoring chance metrics, they end up they ended up skewed in Colorado's favor. But a ton trailed. of that came in the third period For sure. when the game was out of hand. For sure. And I thought, so you're right. There was a big discrepancy in goaltending. There's yeah, a, but Tampa, they also won six two and outscored them five nothing five on five. Tampa was better than Colorado, but it wasn't. This did not look like the inverse of the seven nothing game. Sure, Colorado has a gear that Tampa Bay doesn't have in this series. When Colorado's clicking. They can blow their opponents off of the ice. I don't think Tampa Bay has had that gear all playoffs. 
Like, I even think when you look at the sweep over the Panthers, right, it was like that last-minute goal, a bunch of one-goal wins, right? Like, they don't have the gear where they can blow their opponents out. They have a a level of tactical noose and ingenuity where they hang on, don't let go, and eventually you're in a sleeper hold having been held to two (laughs) goals, um, you know, four over games in game six and seven, and then you're like, how did we lose that series? Like, that's what... That's what the Tampa Bay Lightning do. They're a different type of team than the Avs. And I just felt like Tampa played well. They were the better team. But it wasn't a 6-2 game. It, it was, for me, the game where Colorado's goaltending disadvantage showed through. And now, you know, they are one squeaker garbage goal against Kemper away from their goaltending becoming a big story. Mm-hmm. And you never want your goaltending to be a big story in the playoffs. I mean, you know, one thing I think about a lot is like the Canucks haven't lost a playoff series in which they started one goalie throughout since the Stanley Cup final in 2011, mm-hmm. right? Like the next year when they got swept by the Kings, there was the Schneider Luongo thing. Then it was the Sharks sweep and they had the Schneider Luongo thing. And then the next year, remember they rushed Miller back? and play him in that game seven, and he can't really get post to post, and they give up that commanding 3 nothing lead in game six at the Saddledome. And then, of course, we all know the bubble yeah. with, uh, with Demko. So it's like, you never want to be the team where your goaltending's a big story. Like, that's always a, a death knell. And I do think Colorado's now at a point where, you know, they're one bad goal away from that being the talking point. Meanwhile, for Tampa Bay, you can put up seven on Vasilevsky. You're going to see him the next night. You yeah. know it. Like, there's no chance that the goal attending will ever be the story for Tampa Bay. I don't think most of our listeners can mention, can, like, know who Tampa Bay's backup is. You know, like, people don't even know who he is. Yeah. It's incredible. There's no question, right? And Marcus and Gibson's along those lines text in. By the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. He says, uh, Bednar pulling Kemper at 5-2 may be the turning point in the series. Vassie's confidence allows him to stay in for a 7-0 game and come back to win the next game. Uh, now I'm worried about Colorado's goaltending moving forward. And as you said, we're not there yet. And it, everyone expects Darcy Kemper to come out and start game four. Oh, he will. You have to. But... It's getting close, right? It's it's very much within the realm of possibility that if things go a certain way in Game 4, all of a sudden you are in this goalie dilemma, tied in a best-of-three series against the, the yeah. back-to-back well, champs. And you never you never want to hear the words connected with your Stanley Cup hopes, Franco's time. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not something you want. So, look, I mean, Game 4 becomes huge, just absolutely crucial, right? Because either Colorado puts a stranglehold back on this series or they go back with a lot of pressure on them and everyone's talking about, you know, that that Vegas series from last year and how they came out of the gates and stomped their opponent and then lost four straight, right? I mean, that's that's going to be the story if Colorado can't get it done on Wednesday. The margins are fine and this Tampa Bay Lightning team is expert at home. Like, they are so good. They are so good at just narrowly winning and hanging on against superior opponents. And I think we've seen enough in this series now to have a good sense that the Avs are the superior side. And yet we all know that that's not enough. That's not enough sometimes, especially once you're down to four games remaining in the season. Um, This text comes in from Minor Matt. He says, oh, now you're worried about their goaltending, Marcus? I think even Bednar was worried about the Avs goaltending before the season started. Well, he sh- <laughs> Kemper, Kemper's not great. It's it's not ideal. It's not the position you want to be in, like just to say the least. Now, 
they can outperform it. We've seen them. They're quite capable of doing that. And Kemper can be good because it's they're goalies. Like, they're goalies. Kemper can be good. And he's going to look good in games where the Avs get one combined shot attempt from their top six the way they did in game two. It's just yesterday they were generating. They were yeah. scoring again. And their chances were good. And their chances looked good even before the disallowed knuckler. Their chances were good. Like, Tampa Bay looked like a... a decidedly different opponent. Well, to your point yesterday. about this was, it's, it would be kind of easy to say, oh, 7-0, but then they respond with their own blowout. And you're right. The discrepancy in play in those two games, it's not mirror. It's not equivalent. That that game two performance from Colorado was unlike pretty much anything we've seen all season. That was just a phenomenal beatdown of Tampa Bay. But I do think, especially through the first two periods, obviously, where the game was still somewhat in doubt, Tampa legitimately controlled play. They were the better team. They were getting the better of the opportunities. Now, Vasilevsky had to make some really big saves in there, and obviously there's a disallowed goal, so I understand that. But Tampa showed an ability to not reach that same top gear that Colorado has, but to be the better team for, again, for two full periods, and we just hadn't seen that at all no, in yet. this series, series, right? The, the closest we'd come was maybe like a 10-minute stretch in game two of the uh, – or sorry, in the second period of game one – but for any sort of extended stretch of time, we hadn't seen it. So the fact that they were able to do that, that's really key for me. They were able to, as you said, their chances were legit. They were able to get to the slot, which was so hard for them to do consistently in the games in Colorado. So as much as it was about goaltending, again, you know, they outscored Colorado 5 nothing at 5-on-5, five five, right? Yeah. So it wasn't just goaltending. And I think there's still room for a... You know, a game where Tampa doesn't have their best effort and doesn't control play, but Vasilevsky steals it. That's still very much on the table, and that would worry me if I was Colorado. So I don't want to do the, like, gratuitous bat pack thing, uh, back pat thing for once, for once, <laughs> and and sort of point out our prevailing analysis going into this series was that Tampa Bay is the team that figures you out and adapts, right? They're like Darwin from the X-Men First Class yeah. movie. But the thing that's materially different is as I watched that Rangers game three, right, of the Eastern Conference final where Tampa Bay clawed their way back and then won it with the, that was the tip. Remember that little tip pass to Palat for the one-timer? Just beautiful at the side of the net. I remember watching that game with a sense that Colorado had solved their opponent. And I think I came on the radio the next day or two days later and said, there's a difference between winning a game and solving an opponent. And I think that Tampa Bay got uh, has solved the Rangers. That game last night didn't feel like that to me. By any means. By any stretch, frankly. Colorado still has that higher gear. And I do think adapting to Colorado, you know, is is more like adapting to when the, the you know, Magneto-like character puts the thing in Darwin's mouth and he actually ends up turning to stone. Like, this is a different quality of opponent, a different caliber of opponent than, than Tampa's faced yet. This is going to be a fascinating game for, and I, I mean, we're definitely going to have a series. I, I see no way that this ends quicker than six. I don't think Colorado is going to win the next two, and I don't think Tampa Bay is going to win the next four, to be totally honest. The next three. Yeah. The next three, excuse me. So, you know, I think we're going six or seven, and I think we're going to get the heavyweight tilt that we all want. I mean, I certainly hope so. And the thing is, at least... Now, the last two games haven't been close in either direction, right? And so that can be frustrating. That's not necessarily what we wanted going into the series. Which, but Which is funny because the first game wasn't close either. No, it just looked close. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was close on the scoreboard, but last night was actually closer in terms of form than the first game. And 
it's still though there's still the possibility as you said of that clash really developing and really turning into the classic series well, we have that, that everyone now. was expecting yes like, oh yeah game four is gonna be intense man i i can't oh wait. yeah i can't wait it's going to be really good. And this one, uh, this text comes in from Chef Swagger from Hell's Kitchen. He says, uh, why hasn't anybody talked about the altitude in Colorado possibly affecting Tampa in game one and game two? I mean, I think I've seen some mentions of that. I don't know if it's the altitude, but I do think the home road thing is going to be really interesting in this series because Tampa's the road team, right? So, hey, it's great. You can win all your games at home, but still lose the series. They, they're going to have to figure out a way to be based, to be perfect at home, but then also find a way to crack the code in Colorado, right? So that that still, if, you know, again, far be it for me to bet against the Tampa Bay Lightning, figuring out a way to do it, but that would be my big concern. It's like, okay, hey, you played a lot better at home, but that's not going to cut it. You're going to have to do something on the road at some point. How much time have you spent in Denver? Not a lot. A little bit, but not a lot. I- the the dryness is another factor. Like I I swear I drink eight liters of water a day when I'm in Denver. Like it's wild. And I'll always remember work experience story. I'll always remember after a period, uh, taking Sasha Barkov aside to do television, like doing the poll. And Barkov's like the fittest person I've ever met. Like he works out for an hour after games. Right? He's just an absolute monster. And I just remember him being like, I need a minute. And, and standing there trying to catch his breath, um, pounding waters. And and that was like a moment where I was like, okay, now, now I sort of understand the mile high effect. The, you can't underplay the elevation, but Tampa Bay is going to have to figure out a way to contain Colorado. Uh, they, like in, they're going to have to win a game there. I mean, there's no route to the cup for them that doesn't involve a game that Got they it. win yeah. in Denver. So, I, you know, if, if, one t- if one team can adapt to it, it's them. For sure, but yeah, I mean, when you combine a team that can run you off the ice, right, just like absolute, you know, uh, come out like gorillas style beatdowns, like the like the Avs authored in game two and like they authored throughout their first three rounds against a variety of teams, you know, it does pose a unique challenge, no question. The other thing that stood out to me, and it, this isn't necessarily an, an accurate kind of accounting of, of how well these two players played, but... We've made so much of how great the pairing of Kale McCarr and Devon Taves is and how much color, or Tampa needs to do damage in the minutes when they're not on the ice. And yesterday, they actually decisively won the minutes when those guys were on the ice together. 2 nothing. Now, again, it's not as if McCarr and Taves were you know hapless and coughing up the puck all over the place out there. But still, all of a sudden, if you figure out a way to not just break even in those minutes, but win those minutes, forget about the rest of the roster. That's a huge development for Tampa. It was interesting, though, because Bowen Byram... Uh, was still really, really good <laughs> last night. So it wasn't, you know, we've always kind of looked at it as, okay, you're going to lose those Makar Taze minutes. What what can you do against the rest of the roster for Colorado? And last night they actually found a way to win those very challenging minutes against, you know, the best pair, the best blue line pair in the NHL. Yeah, and I'd be shocked if there's any supplemental, supplemental discipline coming for... Sounds like I, sorry, sounds days. like it's not, yeah. yeah. As I'd be stunned. I didn't think it warranted it. Um, borderline hit, but not anything beyond that. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, look, Taves and Makar are incredible. Tampa Bay's top six got going. This is going to be a lot of fun on Wednesday. Now It's going to be a blast. Now, I heard Elliot Friedman on Donnie and Dolly earlier Mm -hmm. talking about the Washington Capitals in the context of a Colorado Avalanche player who we actually haven't seen in this series yet in Nazem Kadri. If they get him back, that could be a big swing, by the way. 
Kadri, of course, being the top centerman available on the unrestricted free agent market, and we all know what's happened with Washington vis-a-vis Nick Backstrom, who looks like he's not going to play next year and maybe maybe might be at the end uh, of what's been a tremendous career for him. And so, I, you know, I, I was thinking about that because I think it's a most of interest for our listeners because of the idea that the Caps could be a bidder for Kadri and potentially yep. a player like a JT Miller. Um, not a bad assignment for for Miller, eh? Well, if you're a UFA center sliding into the Nick Backstrom role, that's pretty appealing. Oh, I get to pass to uh, Alex Ovechkin? Yeah, okay, I can live with that. Yeah, I get to be a part of that power play. Yeah, all right, that's I fine. Might have to. Yeah, you might have to um lose your uh, lose your spot on the power play there, though on your on your downhill side. Yes. I think that's uh, if you're JT Miller. I, yeah, I think that's taken. How do you feel about the other side of the ice, <laughs> JT? <laughs> but uh, but you know, I was thinking about it because. One thing that I, I I laugh about when I watch this Avs team play is they've got some really intriguing unrestricted free agents, pending unrestricted free agents. Guys who I've included on lists and who will be talked about, I'm sure, as we approach the next three weeks and, and into July 13th when the market opens. And I was thinking about it, and I'm not sure that there's a single Avs player who's hitting the UFA market who's not going to sign a contract that ages terribly, right? Like, this is one of those things where, you know, uh, teams that go deep, teams that get a lot of attention mm-hmm. late in the playoffs, they often end up, you know, their players end up, you know, burying money in the backyard <laughs> with contracts I, that age terribly. I remember um, from the 2011 run, it was like, well, one of BX or Airhoff is gone. Because right. you're going to the Stanley Cup final and everyone's seeing how well they're playing and you're going to lose one of them and ended up being Christian Ehrhoff in a deal that didn't age well for the team uh, that signed it. No, uh, it did not. <laughs> to say the least. So that's, that's just a dynamic. But it's an interesting point you bring up. And I, this is something I wanted to talk about because we always talk, we always look at it from the through the frame of how can your team, and not just the Canucks, but how can Team X get to the level of Tampa and Colorado? How can they copy what these extremely successful teams are doing? And I mean... Years of intelligent but, maneuvers. But also, if you want to take the short route, hey, what better way to copy these teams than sign some of their players at unrestricted free agency? But Stop. the dynamic, of Stop course. That. No, but the dynamic, of course, is, hey, you have a super successful showcase in the Stanley Cup final. The price goes way up, and you might be a really good player, but all of a sudden you're actually going to be way overvalued yeah, on the open the, market. The, the price of the Nachushkin brick is yeah. spiking. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it no is. Question. So I wanted to, I'll, I'll pose this question to you and I'll pose this question to the listener as well. Of the unrestricted free agents on these two teams, Tampa Bay and Colorado, is there anyone that, in taking all of this to account, so not just whether you like them as a player, because all of these guys we like as players for the most part, but taking into account the demand for their services, what their next contract is likely to look like, are there any of the unrestricted free agents in this series that you think would make sense for the Canucks to really target. Now, you mentioned Valerie Nachushkin, and I'm really torn on Nachushkin because, on the one hand, this is the classic example of when a player gets overpaid, right? Career year, doing it in the playoffs, everyone is like, oh my gosh, this guy's incredible. We have to go get this guy. Guy you want on his previous contract, not his next one. The one thing I'll say with Nachushkin is because so much of his value is still tied up in his two-way defensive ability... I'm not sure teams outlandishly overpay for that in the same way they overpay for goals. Except that he's going to be overpaid for the production. Because yeah. his production spiked. So you you end up in the worst of both worlds, where you're paying for a level of production that he's never done before and may never replicate. 
particularly once he's in a less good situation with with you know a, a less dynamic attacking side. So I mean, Nachushkin for me, I love the player, love the player, and yet he's a phenomenal player. And yet, there's that, no doubt about that it. That one to me is a stay away. Like just because you know he's been an analytics darling before he broke out doesn't mean that his new level of production that he managed this year is here to stay. Like there are definitely there's definitely some regression risk there, particularly if you're putting him into a more featured role on on a different club. So you know, Nachushkin's a good example for me. Of guy, you have to be very careful not to overpay. Josh Manson, yeah. Josh Manson just went for a third. Like, you know, we're four or five months removed from teams being like, nope, no thanks. That's a reputation bet. You know, he went for a third and and Hellison, who's a good prospect, but not a like a B prospect, right? And that tells you where his value was. And now, you know, he scored goals off the rush in the Cup final, right? He's played sturdy defense. He's played a top four role. And he's done it well. He's been a great fit for the Colorado Avalanche. But on his next deal, oh boy, you've got to be very, very careful. Nazem Kadri hit a level of production he's never before hit and probably never will again. I mean, the difference in Nazem Kadri's production this year and JT Miller's is basically that JT Miller was healthier, right? I mean, that's how good Kadri was. He was a top 10 scorer on the fringes of it and certainly top 10 by points per game uh, throughout this year. And he checked a huge box. By not getting suspended, losing, not keeping his composure in the playoffs. Yeah, right. Like that answers a big question for teams around the league. Huge. So, you know, that's another contract that I think you buyer beware in in the extreme. And then you get to Darcy Kemper, and Darcy Kemper. Who boy? I mean, that's he's a six and a half million dollar goalie, maybe seven. So long as he you know manages to keep the net, particularly if they win. I mean, Kemper's going to be the best starter on the market. Well, every team needs goaltending. Like, there's almost no teams that don't have a significant need, you know, in one of their positions in net. And the teams that are desperate for goaltending, you think about a team like New Jersey, mm-hmm. where it could make all the difference. Um, You know, he's the best guy. Like, he's going to get, in a world where we're talking about Jack Campbell and Ville Husso as four and a half, five million dollar players. I mean, we're talking about Kemper as a six and a half. For sure. For sure we are. So, no, no, thank you. Obviously, it's not relevant from a Canucks perspective anyways, no, but even goodness. if you're other teams, yeah, no, thank you. No, thank you. So, you know, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating group in that, you know, you'd love to bring in some of that avalanche winning culture. Yeah. But oh boy, you have to be very, very careful about committing that type of term and treasure to those types of players. The Cadre one is really fascinating as well because the thing with Colorado is they're not they're not Tampa Bay, right? Where they're oh man, how are they going to fit all of these guys under the cap next year? If they loved Nazem Cadre, they could easily, quite easily, bring him back to be their their number two center again next year. But have you heard any kind of reporting or scuttlebutt that indicates that he's going to be back with Colorado? It seems very clearly pointed in one direction, and I think it's telling that a team that's as intelligent and as well-built as Colorado is basically already saying, yeah, you know what, go go try your hand somewhere else. They're not even going to try. Yeah, we're, we're not interested. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll have some token they'll, conversations. They'll, they'll talk, of course. But, but, you know, you've got JT Comfort, you've got Logan O'Connor, who I think the hockey world's now realizing is pretty good. You've got Alex Newhook, who you who you're molding into something and you'll, you know, they're Colorado. They're going to take some flyers and find some guys. And if they can't find the right guy, they're going to trade for a guy who's expiring at the deadline next year. I mean, that's how they do business. Like they're not going to commit a ton of, you know, term and treasure to use a favorite term on a player 
who, you know, has been a tremendous fit for them as a second line center, but who would eat into some of their available cap space that they're going to need to be protective of with Nathan McKinnon yes. expiring after next season. Um, now, all of that said, Colorado's going to exp- going to enter this offseason with like 26 and a half million in cap space and all of their core group locked up for next year. Now, I, I, I sent a tweet about how they had their core group locked up and people are like, well, no, McKinnon. And it's like, yeah, but when you're as good as the Avs, your horizons are smaller, right? You know, we talk a lot or we get a lot of texters talking about like, well, the Canucks would be a worse team next year if they do this. And it's like, yeah, sure. Who cares? The difference between the seventh best team in the West and the 10th best team in the West is is not worth thinking short term about. But the difference between being the best or the third best team in the league, that marginal value is astronomical because banners fly forever, right? There, there's a, a totally different orientation. So the Avs have McKinnon and their core group, Rantanen, Makar, Taves, Byram, Gerard, uh, an embarrassment of riches, Landeskog, all locked up for next season. They can absolutely bring back, you know, Kadri and Nachushkin probably. Oh, yeah. And, and Kemper, to be totally honest with you. They probably can make it all work if they want to. And yet, I bet while, you know, prioritizing... <laughs> their chance to win again next year, regardless of the outcome of this series, they're still going to have their eyes trained somewhat on making sure that they can win for years to come because you have to have a long runway. That's the anything that's the anything can't happen handbook. You have to have a long runway. You have to have a long window in which you have a chance to win. And over committing to Kadri would in some ways impinge on that, even though they're a team that's actually well positioned to get good value out of that deal because you know the surplus value that Kadri would bring them in year one is actually worth off. it. Is actually yeah. worth it, and they're still probably not going to make a hugely concerted effort to do that deal. Speaks volumes. It speaks volumes about how the best, smartest, sharpest organizations in this league are run. And I think there's has to be echoes in how the Canucks think about and approach and how this market and the fans in this market think about and approach what they'd like to see happen with a very, very good player in JT Miller, who without question would be a massive loss for this team. Some other quickly, we're talking about, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the Miller conversation because there's, as you mentioned, there was a little bit of Let's a tidbit play, from we'll, Elliot Friedman. We'll but, play the hits. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it at some <laughs> point later in the show. Don't worry, everybody. We'll talk about JT Miller. I know it's been a few days. Uh, while we're having the conversation about UFAs from Tampa and Colorado that interest you, that the Canucks should be interested in, and, and hit us up 650-650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line. So just looking down some of the other, I don't want to say key, but interesting UFAs on Cal- Colorado. There's also... Uh, Andre Burakovsky, who I like a lot as a player, but I think he's going to get paid a, a, an awful lot. That's an F for me. Like, I like Burakovsky a lot as a middle six winger. Yeah. But so, you know, what, what, a middle six winger, maybe if you think that he has additional utility on, on PP1 for you, like if you think he can be a high volume gunner in the, um, on, on you know, at the half wall, like on one of the circles on your first power play unit, fine. But I still think you're going to have to be very careful about any deal that starts with a number like four. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I mean, I, I, I would be leery of making that bet. And then the other name, and this is <laughs> completely unglamorous, not really exciting at all. No, and- this is one of my favorite guys. <laughs> No, I think he was on one of your lists, actually. Uh, absolutely, he was. Shopping targets. But uh, Nico Sturm. Yes, and the interesting love thing, Nico Sturm. The interesting thing with Nico Sturm, of course, he came over in the, the Tyson Jost trade with Minnesota. 
he hasn't been a regular in the lineup. He's played, but he hasn't been a regular in the lineup yeah. in Colorado. So the fact that he's getting healthy scratched, I, I wonder if that kind of alleviates some of the overbidding by virtue of being on the Colorado some Avalanche. Of some of it. But at the end of the day, he's a big physical, um, devil-may-care fourth-line center. <laughs> like Those guys get paid. Size down the middle. So yeah, I mean, I think I get what you're saying. Maybe he doesn't get the same it's Stanley not, Cup you know, shine. If like if Arturi Lekkinen was at UFA, oh my it's like goodness. oh wow, he went. Oh my goodness, we got to get this guy right. It, like that kind of although, trade deadline opportunity. Although Lekkinen's a perfect example of a guy who you know has never really been a featured winger on a team ever, and and I think could have some of that like first year Vegas Golden Knights Eric Halla style shine if if given an opportunity to do more for a team. Unfortunately, I think part of the reason that Colorado paid up to do that deal was that they're going they're to get aware of that. that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you have to manage the departures of some top six forwards and strengthen your team for a run, Lekkonen was the perfect target for them, right? The perfect guy because he can he can probably play top six, even top line for them next year. And I, I bet you he can do a more than creditable job. But yeah, I think Nico Sturm, again, as, as when we... <laughs> To just jump over, ah, Kadri, Nachushkin, whatever. No, Nico Sturm, I think. I, but legitimately, based on what he's going to get paid and the Canucks' needs, I think he might be the most interesting guy there. The problem is he's left-handed. It's you know, true. like, at the end of the day, I just, even if you're even if you're keeping this group together, right, with Miller, Horvat, Pedersen down the middle, and, uh, uh, by the way, a enviable uh, set, of, set of centermen to have on lines one, two, three. I still think, and as much as I like Yuho Lamico and think he proved that he can be an everyday player last season... I still don't know how you proceed without a lefty, or sorry, without a righty, righty. who can kill penalties for you. Uh, you know, it's one of the reasons that I'm continuously wondering about a guy like a Curtis Lazar for for this team in free agency, just because I I don't see a way around requiring a player capable of bringing that to this group. Like you need it, you just need it. It is what it is for me anyway. Quickly on the Tampa Bay cohort of UFAs. So the ones that jump out to me, Andre Palat, Nick Paul, and Yan Ruda on the back end. Has Palat, Palat, we've talked a lot about him on the show, fantastic player. Has he priced himself out of reasonable consideration What's priced out? If If you're moving out money, if you're moving out money, but there's a chance to get Palat at six times three, I think, I think any team where practice habits and culture have been question marks hanging over the group would be well-served bringing in a person like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I love Plot. Great player. <laughs> I love Plot. Great player. Paul, I think, is going to be too expensive. Also a really good player. Three and a half million, maybe? At least he's an elite penalty killer. If you're getting Nick Paul at a three and a half million AAV, I would strongly consider it. That's You think that's low? I don't know about low, but I think that's a good number. For a player like that, I mean the one thing. The one thing is, and I, I you know, I, I think about this a lot with uh, Tanner Pearson, right? The the Tanner Pearson argument swings wildly in this market, and and I've always been a fan of the player, and and I've always thought that the contract was an ill advised gamble. Um, he performed up to it this season, but you can always find players like that at one million. Yeah, you know, like at the end of the day, a middle six winger should slot into your lineup at one and a half, like. Overpay for a first-line center, overpay for a second-line center, overpay for a star winger, overpay for top one and two defensemen, and overpay if you really have to for a starter. But the the other positions, you have to be confident that you can find. You have to be able to, you have to be confident that you can find the next Nick Paul. It's a good comparison because that the number you throw out for Nick Paul. See, I for me I don't that's think a it, stay away. 
I don't, but it's the kind of deal, much like Tanner Pearson's, where you're, he's probably going to live up to it, but you're not going to feel like you're crushing it. You're not going to feel like you hit a home run signing that deal. The fact that he can play center raises the floor a bit, and the fact that he's elite in one's phase of special teams, right? Like, he's a really good penalty killer, raises the floor. Like, I, 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 I still wouldn't do it. Yan Ruda. I love Yan Ruda. I like Yan Ruda a lot, too. I like Yan Ruda a lot. Price, obviously, and he gets the Tampa shine and all of that, but veteran, right-handed guy, like, checks a lot of boxes for uh, for the Canucks. Perfect. I, I think he'd be a perfect fit if he if he wanted to get paid and if he wanted to do the Luke Shen. <laughs> like, literally, it would be, I want to do the Luke Shen. Yeah. If he wanted to do the Luke Shen. I, ho- I hope Luke is uh, on the phone just raving about his Canucks experience to Yan Ruda. <laughs> do what I did. It's amazing. Yeah. It's awesome. I play every day. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's incredible. Um, on uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I think Yan Ruda would be a great bet uh, if, you're, if you're looking for, like, a low-cost Hughes partner. But I also don't really think he's a top four guy. Like, I know he plays on their top pair in, in line rushes. He's on their top pair. But he's a third pair guy by minutes and by true talent, in my view. So, you know, at the right price, I like that bet a lot, but uh, I don't know. I, 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 it's hard to see him leaving. Like, if you have that cushy job as, as Hedman's running mate, like, yeah. I don't know. That would tempt me to just be like, yeah, let's run it back. Especially because you're not going to be like a cap casualty. You're, right? you're, you're not in them... that type of price range. They are going to be able to afford to keep you if you want. So if Tampa Bay wins three of the next four. Yes. Right? I wonder what sort of pressure that creates on all of For their everyone guys to come back. To just be like, nah, do we want to just run this back? Why one would last I leave? Time? Yeah. yeah, like, you know, I'll, I'll keep more of my money. I'll live in the sunshine. And let's go for four. Let's in take a, row. a run at the Islanders. Yeah, it. Uh, you're going to see a lot of guys resign. I think, anyways, especially if they pull this out and win three straight here. Uh, we got to go to break. We're super late. Keep your text coming in six fifty six fifty. We'll get into a little bit more Andre Kuzmenko discussion plus some J T Miller tidbits as well. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet six fifty. Welcome back to the show, Sportsnet 650, Canucks Hour, Jamie Dodd and Canucks Insider. Thomas Drance here with you for an abbreviated final segment of the program after we went long in the first segment. Uh, 650, 650, keep your thoughts coming in. By the way, Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Avenue Machinery dot ca we were talking about uh, potential ufa targets that the canucks could be interested in from tampa bay and colorado and a lot of texts of this variety coming in uh, this one from ragers says i don't want anyone from this series stay away from an overpay hold on to the cap space for next offseason and look that's probably the correct answer don't overpay for guys who just are coming off a stanley cup final but hey come on rager we're doing sports talk radio so we got to talk about something uh this one came in as well the canucks should sign Corey perry just to lose in the cup finals again the perry curse is real. Here's the thing with that. He signed a multi-year deal. Well, but but also <laughs> here's the thing. He's not available. He also, he already won a cup. So the whole like, oh, he's gonna lose. It's like he won a Stanley Cup early in his career. It's not a curse. He's not cursed. He's on, already done it on on another kid line. Kid it's lines. True. I like kid lines. Kid lines are always a fun Stanley Cup final or Stanley Cup playoff wrinkle. I like when teams emerge with a kid line. That's like a favorite thing of mine. It's good. Yeah, it's fun. It's enjoyable. But it, uh, yeah. They're I, they're all young. They're a kid line. It's like, okay. Hockey creativity strikes again. <laughs> My goodness. 
<laughs> but yeah, I've, I have not bought into the Corey Perry curse because again, he he's he has a Stanley Cup ring, so oh, I, how, I don't feel too bad for how Corey can, Perry. How can anyone? I yeah. mean, Corey Perry's really good, uh, and and Corey Perry's won gold medals. Yes, Corey Perry, I believe he him won- and Scott Niedermeyer, the six gold club. Memorial Cup, World Juniors, World Championships, Stanley Cup, Olympics, World Cup. So he's done a lot of winning. So I yeah. don't feel too bad for, no. for Corey Perry. Um, incredible nor sh- resume, by nor, the way. Nor should you. Um, except except his Hart Trophy win was a sham. Sorry, there you go. I just I just it's got to be put, it's got to be put out there. He stole that from Daniel Sedin. It was a triumph of narrative over wisdom, unparalleled. In in PHWA voting over the last twelve years, it's always good when the winner of the heart and the winner of the Lindsay disagree. Although you know that happens sometimes, especially in the era of McDavid, where players are just like, "Have you seen this guy? He's incredible!" But he doesn't always win the win the heart. So, uh, speaking of free agents, the Canucks landed a very interesting free agent yesterday. Of course, a European free agent, Andre Kuzmenko, out of the KHL. It happened just about a half an hour before our show went on the air yesterday, so we got a lot of reaction in. But you also later yesterday uh, with Rick Dollywell up at The Athletic had a really interesting piece just kind of going inside the pursuit by the Canucks of Andre Kuzmenko and how they eventually landed the player. And the thing that really jumped out to me, well, a couple of things. One, just how much this was Patrick Alvine driving it and how how, how central that yeah, he, he was to the whole process. But also... Just the idea that it didn't seem particularly close. But that, that, you know, the tension about which way this was going kind of evaporated quite a bit earlier than maybe people on the outside realized. Yeah, and I think probably a little bit earlier than the Canucks realized, too. I think there was a pretty strong sense that Vancouver was the first choice, you know, by last weekend. Not, not this past weekend, but the weekend prior to that. And then I think the Canucks felt really confident as of Saturday. Now... The industry always handicapped Vancouver as being the front runner. There was a reason that, you know, we were calling them prohibitive favorites. We, we don't do that lightly. We don't just do that to build hype. If we're saying prohibitive favorites, it means we're talking to at least a couple of other teams who are in it, who are like, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's there might be something there. Almost every team in the league checked in on this guy. But there were some teams that didn't weren't as enamored as by his game as the Canucks were. In particular, concerns about perimeter orientation, even though Kuzmenko is 5'11", 200 pounds, looks bigger than that when you when you watch the film, which I did a little bit of last night. I think the passing is going to play more than the shot, at least at the, at the get-go. I, I think this guy's going to be more of a pass-first type player in the NHL. And, and one thing we mentioned on the show yesterday that... You know, could he be an option at the right or at the left mm-hmm. circle on his on his sort of offside as a playmaker? And you know, he could be in time. But I went back and when I when I try and watch film outside of like YouTube highlights, right, of of a guy just who you know, I, I feel like I I should have a better sense of his game than I previously had. The easiest thing for me to do, particularly when they're as productive on the power play as Kuzmenko is. And power play role, I think, looms really large in this instance, is I'll watch their power play shifts because that's a really easy way to make it digestible. Instead of having to watch two games or three games and pretending that's representative, you're able to watch, you know, half of the power play ice time that he spent last season in like two hours, two and a half hours. It's a it's a way to sort of pony up pretty quick. And that's what I did with Kuzmenko last night. 
he was really a net front guy mm -hmm. for Ska, but on the international sheet, when you're the net front guy, you spend a lot of time beside the net, behind the net. You're not lodged into like an Alex Chase on deflections and yeoman's work type role the same way. But that's going to change. Once you get to the NHL, um, you know, there's there's going to be a requirement to do a little bit more of that. What Kuzmenko really did for Ska on the power play last year was sort of facilitate an awful lot with with movement from down low. From below the goal line. Yeah. And and you know, I thought I thought as I watched a little bit more of it that there was maybe some like some elements of his game that could make him a Toffoli esque type contributor. I mean, you remember how Toffoli's passing sort of opened things up for Bo Horvat in well, particular. And he stepped in because of course he stepped into the lineup when Brock Besser was so, injured and yeah. really went into that Brock Besser role. And now Besser never left it. What, yeah, and you wouldn't necessarily call Besser that traditional net front guy in the way you're describing Alex Chase. He's Jason. found ways to be extremely effective there, but I don't think it's the place that he's best suited to on in a 1-3-1. And when I think of Brock Besser on the power play in that role, the moments I think of most are when he's part of that triangle with Miller and Horvat, right? Yeah. And it's often Besser, you know, who takes the pass from Miller and then immediately gets it to Bo Horvat in the yeah. slot, right? And that is a, a an element of that position that it sounds like Andre Kuzmenko has a bit of the skill set to duplicate, well, too. And Besser's improved a ton as a playmaker over the past two, three years, but I think Kuzmenko's going to be on day one anyway, better at finding soft areas of coverage and teammates and threading passes through defenders. I, I mean, I think he's going to be like the one skill that I'd be most confident about playing, right? Cause, cause there's some direct things that he does when you watch the goals that he scores. There's some, there's a pretty simple, get the puck, take the puck to the net. I'm a tank kind of stuff at the KHL level, but he's not going to be like his size is his size is a, genuine feature of his game but it's not going to be as big an edge in the NHL as it was in the KHL like there's stuff like that stuff about his attacking style stuff about the shot that I think will you know still play but not play up or, or not be as impactful in, at the NHL level as it was for him in the K last year but the passing is something like I do think day one he's going to be an effective playmaker particularly on the power play in the NHL like I really do think He's got that side of the game and could be a plus playmaker on day one. Even even though, you know, in saying that, I still expect a bit of a learning curve as oh, he yeah. becomes familiar with the North American game. You know, it's interesting, though, what you said about his willingness to go to the net and his success going to the, the net in the KHL. And yeah, that's going to get a lot more difficult when you're all of a sudden shifting to the NHL game. But at least he has that willingness. At least he has that mentality, right? And maybe he can figure out a way in time to replicate some of what he was able to do successfully in the KHL. Well, although, again, like he had a lot of points in that manner, and yet his the perimeter orientation of his game was a drawback for teams that ultimately weren't uh, as interested as suitors as, as teams like Vancouver were. Obviously, the Canucks don't have concerns about that. I think there's reasons to believe that Kuzmenko as, you know, uh, a like. You know, as the puppet master of a ska attack, probably lingered on the perimeter intentionally mm -hmm. to some extent. So, you know, I'm sure that's a factor that the Canucks Wade probably asked about in the course of interviews. But I also think you need to keep in mind that, you know, while I see it in his play style, I don't know that it plays up. And there are other evaluators, professional evaluators, who see it and think, you know, I'm not sure about this player because of this exact aspect that I'm talking about. The, pl the playmaking, though, I do think will play up, and I do think, 
you're going to you're going to want to give him an opportunity at the net front first. It's going to be the spot where he's most familiar. Uh, there are definitely differences between playing a one three one on the international sheet versus the NHL sheet. I don't think it's going to be like day one. He's going to be absolutely destroying it there. But there is a chance that he could be a really dynamic down low playmaker for this team. Maybe not day one, but maybe you know six to eight weeks into his NHL career. I think there's a real chance that he's a weapon uh, of a significant magnitude, particularly in the event that the Canucks have him on a power play with a bunch of lefties who are really good shot, uh, one-shot scorers yeah. in Bo Horvat, Elias Patterson, and JT Miller. The interesting thing with Kuzmenko in this signing is, you know, we've got a lot of texts and tweets asking us, okay, who's he going to play with? Where's the best fit? Can he play with Elias Pettersson? Can he play with Bo Horvat? And I think the biggest takeaway for me, and we mentioned this in terms of roster construction yesterday, but I think the same thing goes to lineup construction is just gives them a lot more flexibility. It's another guy who can, you know, you have another option to try out with a bunch of these players, especially if you do return all three centers. And look, I'm as big a fan of the, you know, armchair coach and jotting down line combinations on the back of a napkin as anybody. It's really difficult to do with the Canucks right now, though, because we have no idea who's still going to be here in the fall. And I'll use that to transition to, uh, we touched on with Don Taylor and Rick Dolly while Donnie and Dolly today. Uh, Sorry, can, can we rewind? Let's, sure. let's save the Miller stuff because we'll right, do that. Sure. We'll do that for the next two and a half weeks. And in fact, we've done it for the last four and a half months. There's always room for more, though, Jackson. <laughs> I know, there is. Always. But here's a fun exercise. And I challenge our listeners to do this, too. Get it, get at us with uh, with responses, and we can get into it more tomorrow. One thing that's interesting is you look on paper, you list the players. You mm-hmm. list Horvat, Miller, Pedersen down the middle. And then you list Garland, Besser, and Pod Colson on the right side. And you list Hoaglander, Pearson, and Kuzmenko on the left side. Sounds good. It's not bad. But try and make it fit together. The combinations are really interesting. The combinations don't really make sense. Yep. Like, it's really hard to figure out how to line it up in a way that it's like, okay, I'd be comfortable with that line. This is the matchup match-ups. line. This is, yeah, it's... Right? I, I'd be comfortable with that as a secondary scoring line. You know, that line makes sense for Bo Horvat. Like, it's hard to come up with the stylistic fit. It's hard to come up with fits that don't result in, like, Garland and Hoagland yes. playing on the same well, line. A huge part of it is how much appetite is there for two, you know undersized players being on the same line. And and also I come back constantly to who does Garland have the most chemistry with among those three centermen? Is it Pedersen? And if it is Pedersen, then do you need, uh, you know, some more heft on that left wing? Um, It's a really interesting sort of assembly of players. I like all of the players individually. I think they're all really good. And yet I look at it and I don't know how it works. I don't know who your matchup guys are. I don't know that there's enough to to borrow a Jim Rutherford term, sandpaper. Like, I don't know if it's as good in practice as it looks on paper. And I think that's apparent when you look at it on paper assembled into three perspective yeah, lines. You start trying to move the puzzle pieces around and... It's really easy to make two lines you feel great about, and then the third line you're kind of looking at it and saying, uh, I don't know Does about that work? one. Does yeah. that make sense? I'm not sure about that one. Uh, you know, are, are you going to play those two guys together? It's it's a really interesting exercise. So I challenge, if any of uh, if any of our listeners, um, if you're listening to the podcast, text in at any yeah, point. Yeah, we can get into it more we'll, tomorrow. We'll get into it more tomorrow. But if you can solve this problem for us, if you can solve this particular LSAT logic game, let us know. Let us know, and we'll uh, and we'll get into you're it more tomorrow. You're taking me back. You're taking me down memory lane there, Dreadser. <laughs> um 
I was better at the LSAT logic games than I was at law school or being a lawyer. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, <laughs> the other thing that really throws a wrench in the whole lineup construction is Jason Dickinson not being the player that a lot of people hoped he would have been coming over from Dallas, right? Because if he is a third line center that you feel confident putting out there in matchup minutes and you kind of build that matchup line around Jason Dickinson, it solves a lot of these issues. I mean, first of all, you're freeing up one of your big three centers to go play on the wing somewhere else in the top six, which is really nice, but it it just makes things so much more straightforward, and that just doesn't feel like it's an option at this point. It doesn't feel like it's on the radar, and it feels like that third-line center spot is going to be on the shopping list uh, for the Canucks when they end up going into free agency. And that's, like, again... It's really interesting to try to put the puzzle pieces together right now, but you also get the sense that they could just be completely shuffled and different by the time training camp actually opens. <laughs> they could be swept up and thrown in the bin. And well, yeah. and I think part of, you know, beyond all the con- contract stuff that we've talked about, part of that is that they're kind of currently an awkward fit with each other. That there's a lot of talent that other teams would wisely be interested in acquiring, but they don't necessarily all fit in this configuration. The the construction remains an issue, and that's one of the things that Rutherford and Alvin will have to sort out, uh, particularly, and this is, uh, this is, I'm going to end with the rare hopeful note from me, okay, which is, which is, you know, the construction of the group assembled as it was, I think limits, to some extent, what you can get out of the group as a whole. Right, you're too reliant on excellent individual efforts. You go through it. Uh, you're not sure if it fits together, and yet, you know, some of what this team needs isn't necessarily going to be expensive. And there are ways to potentially subtract from the group, bringing in more affordable fits, while actually enhancing the way that it that it fits together and amplifying the individual skill sets there. Like there are ways to. Take that step back on paper, and I'm using scare quotes though you can't see it, without actually weakening the team and its performance and maybe even emerging on the other side with a more balanced group. And that's sort of an interesting wrinkle and an interesting challenge for Rutherford and Alvin to navigate this summer. We will get into it more tomorrow. Enjoy uh, the rest of your day. The People Show, Bik Nazar, Randy Bjanda is up next. Kuzmenko's agent, Dan Milstein joining the show in just about a half hour, so make sure you tune in to that one. We'll be back tomorrow. You've got... The home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.